welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Please remain standing and pray with me. Father God, we do ask now in the name of Jesus that the Holy Spirit who inspired these words, who took John up into uh, your presence in this revelation, Lord. In this, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard a voice say, come up here. Lord, I pray that that same Holy Spirit would open these scriptures to us. Uh, Lord, where we need to hear you, uh, where we need to hear a voice of encouragement, that would be granted. Where we need to hear a voice of correction and, and warning, that would be granted. But in everything, you would be glorified and we would be edified. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you're so faithful. Come now, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the reasons that I am so thankful for the season of Easter, this season of Easter that we are in, the great 50 days in which we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, is because as followers of Jesus in this season particularly, we are reminded that there is glorious, glorious hope for this old world. And I don't mean uh, wishful thinking hope, not just wishful thinking hope. I'm talking about the kind of hope you have when you're in the fifth grade and it's May and you know that summer vacation is coming and you, uh, you know that freedom is just around the corner, and that anticipation, that kind of hope, colors everything. And if you ever have taught fifth graders, you know that's true as well, because they can't think about school anymore. They're living in the future. And in one sense, that's what Easter enables us to do. It's to live in God's future. Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, everything is different in fact, that's why we read Revelation in church during Easter time. The, the text from Revelation during this part of the lectionary cycle remind us that what begins on that first Easter morning in a garden outside of Jerusalem is sending out shockwaves. Those shockwaves from that first, that resurrection morning, that first Easter morning will continue until all of creation is renewed. Christ is risen from the dead, and that isn't just an isolated event like one of the new atheists has said. So what if Jesus was raised from the dead? No, here's what's the issue. If he is raised from the dead, then it is literally the beginning. His resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, is literally the beginning of a new creation because the old creation doesn't work that way. It's the beginning of a new creation. In fact, as early as the second century, Christians began to refer to the day of resurrection as the eighth day, the beginning of a new creation. In other words, uh, the old creation is six days and then God rested on the seventh, but now something new has begun on the resurrection day. So not only is Jesus raised from the dead in a new, transformed, glorified, yet very tangible body, there will be, because of that, a resurrection of the entire cosmos. All of reality will be renewed. 
And that is the glorious future that we just heard read about in Revelation chapter 21. And I'm so thankful for Marcy's deep uh, reading of that her, her engagement with that passage because that should make us feel that way. The opening lines of that passage show us that we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. This is what it says, Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. There is great encouragement in this passage because it means that there was both, listen, there is both continuity with this creation and discontinuity with the present world that we live in. So there's continuity with the present creation, and there's discontinuity with the present creation in the new heavens and the new earth. And I need to unpack that. So there's continuity. Everything about, listen, everything about this creation that we inhabit right now, and by the way, I have made this point over and over again. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. So if you hear me say this more than once, then you're listening. Uh, But everything that about the creation we inhabit right now that is good and true and beautiful. Everything that is good and true and beautiful in this reality will be opened up to an even more, in a more wonderful way in the new heaven and the new earth. All of God's beauty that is hinted at, we see, that we see dimly in this world are, is going to be taken to new levels of delight. Everything that we see in the seed of God's goodness here will be grown into the full, full flourishing in the new heavens and new earth. Let me give you an example. Think about it like this. Um, here's, here's one way to think about it. Uh, there was continuity between Jesus, uh, but between the, the disciples of Jesus's experience, uh, the type, the disciples experience of Jesus after the resurrection and their experience prior to the resurrection. In other words, that somehow they knew that they were encountering the same Jesus after he had been raised from the dead that they knew who walked the dusty pathways of Palestine with them. The risen Christ could be recognized. He could be touched. He could be spoken with. Continuity. He built campfires and cooked breakfast for them. He ate fish one morning after the resurrection on the sea, on the coast of the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. But he could also just show up behind locked doors to meet with huddled and frightened apostles. That is continuity and discontinuity. There's something that continues. There's something that's brand new. Or think about it like this. Scattered all over my yard right now. I don't know. You probably have them in your yard too are those little, uh, at this time of year, are those little maple seeds. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, They're cool, especially if you're a kid. Before the internet, this was really important, because those things are like little helicopters. You know, there's an airfoil attached to that kernel of the seed. And now if you grew up where I grew up in Richmond County, North Carolina, where it's it's the land of longleaf pines, those longleaf pine cones take that little seed and go even, they, they go large with that. But it's the seed, it has the airfoil. And if you drop that seed, what does it do? It spins like that and it flutters far away from the mother tree and it plants another maple tree. Now that seed is amazing. I love those seeds. Uh, like I said, we didn't have the internet. We had to find entertainment somehow. You know, climb up on the shed and drop seeds off the shed. 
Wow, there was the element of danger. That was cool, climbing up on the shed. The element you might get caught by mom and dad. Dad, That was cool. But watching those seeds fly away, that was cool too. But you know what even is even cooler than those seeds is a maple tree. Because when that maple tree begins to grow, it provides shade. It's just in and of itself. There's one, like I said, there's one in my yard. It's beautiful in and of itself. It's lovely. It provides shade in the summertime. Did you know that it is up to six degrees cooler under a maple tree or any kind of shade tree than it is out in the sun? Up to six degrees cooler. I love my maple tree. It's also because of the uh, process of evapotranspiration. So there. <laughs> Ooh, you can tell I researched this illustration. And, and not only that, in the fall, that those maples have such beautiful color, especially I've got a sunset maple, so it changes color from the top to the bottom, and it's, it's just beautiful. It's just beautiful. And if it's a sugar maple, well, <clears throat> that's where maple syrup comes from, so it's all great. So there's continuity with that seed. But there's discontinuity as well. And that's like the new heavens and the new earth. <clears throat> so let me tell you the good news for us this morning. And I need to get some water because I think I've got some uh, pollen. Some of that pollen of the old creation is in my throat. <coughs> Here's good news. Nothing beautiful that you have done that has been touched by God's grace. So listen, nothing beautiful that you have done or experienced that has been touched by God's grace, whether you recognized it or not, none of that will be lost in the new creation. Somehow, <clears throat> every beautiful note of music or stroke of the artist's brush or act of justice for the oppressed or mercy to the afflicted or love poured out on an enemy or sleepless nights spent by the bedside of the dying, not even a cup of cold water given to the thirsty in his name will be forgotten or lost, but will be called up and transfigured and present in that new creation. It is in the context of the resurrection and the new creation that Paul encourages the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. He's talking about the, the uh, new creation. He's talking about the resurrection. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Listen, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. It all matters in the Lord. Your labor is not in vain. It is a, it's a helicopter seed waiting to become a beautiful maple tree. But there's also discontinuity in the new creation. In the new creation, God will, it says, Revelation 21, verses 4 and 5, wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I'm making all things new. Kayanos. There's the word new there is not neos. It's not just like new. It's not merely like, um, it's not like just getting an, uh, 
you've got a, an old car and you get a new car, it's still a car. But if you have an old car and you get rid of it and you get a jetpack, <laughs> I think about that. That's something you've never experienced before. It's new in its essence. I am making everything kyanos new, essentially refreshed. All of the things that mar and destroy and defile this creation, cancer and racism and oppression and dementia and child abuse and broken relationships and the greatest evil of all, death itself, will have no place in God's future for us. The chain reaction of human sin will finally be ended. And not only will God wipe away the tears I have shed, He will wipe away the tears I've caused others to shed. In the new creation, there is an end of regret. Hallelujah. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis wrote that in our present state, we cannot understand the power that is exerted by the new heavens and the new earth. And so uh, the, the person who is leading the main character around, who is the, the person who's speaking with him is George MacDonald, who is actually a, a Scottish uh, author and Christian and pastor, I think, at one time. Uh, but he, he uses George MacDonald as a literary device, and in that book, this is what George MacDonald says. Uh, that is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering... No future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that the new creation, once attained, will work backwards and turn even the ag that agony into glory. The new creation, once attained, will work backward, backwards and turn even that ag agony into a glory. Well, how do we know this to be true? I mean, that's a comforting thought, but is it true? Well, listen. The wounds of Jesus are still visible on his risen body. Just go ask Thomas. But those wounds that were marks of defeat and agony are now the fountains of healing. By his stripes we are healed. They are the fountains of healing and the marks of glory. The venerable Bede said that Christ retained his wounds after the resurrection to wear them as an everlasting trophy of his victory. And we sang that last week. Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side. Rich wounds, yet visible above, in beauty glorified. No angels in the sky. can fully bear that sight. But downward bend their burning eyes at mysteries so bright. 
In the new creation, the ultimate purpose and longing of humanity is finally fulfilled. We finally have unity and fellowship with God. This is what the entire arc of the narrative of all creation has been about. Revelation 21 verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with humans, anthropoi. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You know, the risen Jesus is again our preview of that hope. And Jesus Christ, you know, I, I got to stop. I prayed for a tender heart this morning. <laughs> yeah, I know. I hope I can preach. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. <laughs> And Jesus Christ, heaven and earth are united. Heaven and earth are united in Jesus. In the risen Christ, our perfected, glorified, resurrected humanity is eternally and irrevocably united to God. Jesus is truly human and truly God. In Ephesians chapter 1 Verse 10, St. Paul said, talks about the mystery of God that is being revealed in these last times, that it, and that mystery is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. The risen Jesus, in Him, heaven and earth are united and overlap. And there are no more thin places, they're just right together. We won't have to wait for moments when heaven breaks in. It's where we'll live. And this union of heaven and earth, of the uncreated God with his very good human creation, that has been the theme of the Bible, of the scriptures. From the moment that God walked with Adam and Eve, our first parents in the Garden of Eden, from the moment he made covenant with Abraham, from the moment his glory overshadowed the tabernacle while the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness, from the moment the God who spoke the universe into existence humbled himself to become a fetus in the womb of a teenaged girl from Nazareth, our deepest longings are finally realized in our union with God. That's been the story since the beginning. God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the Arche. He's the source. He's the source of all things. He is the telos, the goal of all of existence. And he said to me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Oh God, I'm thirsty. I want some of that. But, but this passage in verse 8 has the scary, uh, verse 8 is the scary bits. I don't like the scary bits. You are harshing my mellow, John. It's kind of a buzzkill. It says this. It's weird. I mean, we had all that good stuff and now this. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now you need to know that the lectionary omits that verse. 
But the Bible doesn't. <laughs> and we need to hear it. Because who are these people? Who is this list referring to? Well, these are not the oppressive pagans that John is speaking of earlier in uh, the book of Revelation, who through violence and economic seduction have set out to destroy the church, the bride of the Lamb. The church is the bride and the Lamb is Jesus, our conquering Lord. Rather, this is a warning and a promise, okay? This list is a warning and a promise to those of us in the church. Dennis e. Johnson says, This warning targets not the pagan oppressors outside the church, who in John's visions were already destroyed, but the hypocrites and traitors within. Not those outside the church, but the hypocrites and traitors within. The list of sinners, he writes, cowards, unbelievers, the spiritually repulsive murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, may describe those who under the pressure of persecution or economic seduction denied the faith, murderously betrayed their fellow Christians to the persecuting authorities, and practiced the sexual immorality and magic that went along with idolatry. Their inheritance, he says, is not in the pain-free new earth, but their part, their part is in the lake of fire and brimstone. So here is the warning of revelation to us. This is the warning in that verse. Don't become like the world. Don't become supplicit. supplicit. Uh, Keith and I make fun sometimes because Keith invite, invents new words like duplicious <laughs> and we'll never let him forget that. It's like deliciously deceitful, duplicious. <laughs> I just made a new word. So don't become complicit. Don't become complicit with the antichrist pagan forces of the culture that would seek to divide your loyalties between the idols of this world and the Lamb of God, Jesus. Each of those mentioned in that list of Revelation chapter 21 was a temptation faced by Christians living in the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire of John's day. And it's also, however, a point where the world desires us to compromise today. And so I need to speak these warnings. Brothers and sisters, I, um, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. And sometimes the Word of God says scary things. But my conscience is captive to it. I cannot not speak God's whole counsel. And so we need to look at this list and ask God for, for self-awareness. He mentions the cowardly and unfaithful. In other words, those who refuse to confess Christ in the face of opposition. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, But whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." I have friends, uh, I used to be in a, in a mainline um, Protestant denomination, and I, I loved that denomination. It was very, it, 
I became a follower of Jesus there. I was called back to a more ancient way of being a Christian, and so I'm here now. But I have friends in that denomination who have surrendered their faith, not because they're afraid they're going to get killed, but because they're afraid they're going to be unpopular and not get promoted in the ministry. And they've surrendered the truth of the Scriptures. Lord Jesus, make me, Ben Sharp, aware where I am cowardly and unfaithful. The detestable, it's literally those who have become polluted by the world, those who have become conformed to the world. Murderers, those who take or promote taking innocent human life. As I read um, the commentaries for this passage this week, it, they came back over and over again, especially to two things. First of all, murder having to do with being complicit with turning over fellow believers to the persecuting authorities, but also murder that is an incipient in that's a part, a necessary part of idolatry that involves the sacrifice of children. Those who take or promote taking innocent human life those who participate in the culture of death. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. And we see the cultural elite in this country tying themselves in knots to endorse the killing of children. A good example of this would be the internal NPR memo from May 15th of this month, May 15th this month, that was about as close to Orwellian newspeak as anything I have seen outside of a parody in which they tried to massage the language around abortion to promote a particular agenda. The sexually immoral. So many Christians are willing to surrender to the sexual revolution of the Roman Empire, the mores of the Roman Empire, or the sexual revolution of the Western enlightenment empires for the acceptance of the world and the fulfillment of our own lust. Lord God, make me self-aware. Sorcerers. Well, I don't know about any of those. Maybe Sauron. In the Greek, it's pharmakoi because the use of drugs to, the, to ungodly ends is a part of idolatry. That's a part of our culture still as well. Idolaters, an idol is anything that I elevate above God to give me. Please listen. Please just stop and listen. An idol is anything that I elevate above God, that I desire more than God, to give me personal significance, personal significance and fulfillment. God, please grant us self-awareness. All liars... Yikes. You know, social media makes it so easy to lie real fast. Sometimes we don't even know we're promoting a lie. In our idolatrous commitments to our political ideologies, whatever those may be in our agendas, that means that we can lie to advance our tribe's position and we can do it fast and pervasively through means of social media. Or perhaps... We would think about the liars who perpetuate and protect clergy who sexually abuse those under their care. 
The warning is they will be judged. The good news is they won't get away with it. Commentators also say that this refers to false believers, fake Christians, whose doctrine and behavior contradicts genuine faith in the Lamb. So that kind of compromise, if we compromise in those areas, it puts us outside of God's blessing and ultimately under the judgment of God. So we need to examine ourselves and see if we are on a trajectory of compromise with evil. And this is a word that is especially applicable to our graduates this morning. Because let me tell you something, especially those who are graduates and those who have gone on to university or to careers following high school, the world will praise us for our compromises and our conformity, but God will judge us for those things. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did the false prophets. But the promise contained in this passage is that the thing that many people complain about, about the church today, the church is full of hypocrites. Well, it won't be then. And please, God, I want to be sure that I'm not among the hypocrites. That will be dealt with completely. The bride of Christ, the church, will be spotless and undefiled in the new creation. The great promise of Revelation 21, all that we have heard this morning is actually prefigured and made present now at that table right here. Revelation 21 verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with humans. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Bread and wine will be offered to God and in that offering they will be kyanos new, something more than they were. They are in a sense at this table a new creation. The old creation is taken up, offered to God and made something new. They retain continuity with the creation that they were. It tastes like wine. It tastes like bread. If bread doesn't have anything in it except water and flour. But then they are taken to a transcendent level of delight and power and grace because we commune with God here. That is his promise at this table, at this moment, at right there, the dwelling place of God is with humankind. All of God's love and justice are united in Christ's offering for us. God's judgment has been fully met and fully fully dealt with in Jesus Christ. So that when you and I come in faith, trusting in Jesus' offering for us, we are met at this table with love. We are met by love at this table. Behold, I am making all things new. Lord God, it cannot happen soon enough. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristChurchWS.org. 
Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 